Hello and welcome to Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am Sean Williamson. It is sunny and warm around the neighborhood. Plants seem to have rushed up and bloomed overnight. At my house, in the backyard, Victory Gardens Initiative came and installed two very nice garden beds. I have already planted spinach and lettuce and a couple patches of beans. The air has been so humid, I expect these plants to magically appear by morning. I have been homeschooling Theodore and Sawyer to mixed and overwhelmed results. By the time this episode airs, I will have graduated from the MFA program at Sarah Lawrence College. Though my family has mostly been in quarantine for the last 70 days, things seem to be happening all the time and all at once. Theodore and Sora have learned to ride bikes. We have a car and in turn the privilege of going to different bike trails and we've been practicing. Wisconsin is a country place with vast forests and fields with trails of all sorts. The sun is shining. The woods are there. In Wisconsin, it is not hard to socially distance. We are safe. Some people don't believe in the virus, or more commonly don't believe the veracity of the reporting on the virus from mainstream news media. Some people are living their lives as they did before, calculating the virus with other risks to their health, heart disease, car wrecks, cigarettes. Over the course of the last month, the state government has been easing safer-at-home restrictions. State parks reopened for visitors. Retail stores have reopened with a five-person occupancy cap. Deaths have been low in Wisconsin compared to other Midwestern states like Illinois and Michigan. The number of tests and positive cases have both risen, while the percentage of infection has been shrinking before spiking above 8% yesterday. There have been many positive signs, and while some citizens, myself included, see that as effective policy by Governor Evers, others cite the low numbers as reasons to reopen the state, to balance the threat of infection and death against the effects of economic hardship. Last week, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ended the safer-at-home order mandated under the authority of the governor, saying the order was unlawful. This left the state without any precautionary protocol to safeguard against the spread of infection. But considering that the governor was already easing restrictions, that the state had already cleared all but one requirement to begin reopening for business, and that Wisconsin is bitterly divided politically, we can consider how much the Supreme Court decision was about liberty or what is lawful and how much of it was political theater. Either way, the state is open. And while there was wide media coverage of people packing into bars, Mostly bars remain closed and other businesses remain closed or minimally attended. Milwaukee is still shut down under order of Mayor Tom Barrett. All of Dane County, as well as other cities across the state, are still operating under their own protective orders. Still everyone is wondering and most are still waiting. In The Ghost Map, the story of London's most terrifying epidemic and how it changed science, cities, and the world Stephen Johnson writes about the small events leading up to the deadly cholera outbreak of 1854 and the place of the individual in such a crisis. Johnson writes, There is something remarkable about the minutiae of these ordinary lives in a seemingly ordinary week persisting in the human record for almost two centuries. When that chemist's son spooned out his sweet pudding, he couldn't possibly have imagined that the details of his meal 
would be a matter of interest to anyone else in Victorian London, much less citizens of the 21st century. This is one of the ways that disease, and particularly epidemic disease, plays havoc with traditional histories. Most world historic events, great military battles, political revolutions, are self-consciously historic to the participants living through them. They act knowing that their decisions will be chronicled and dissected for decades or centuries to come. But epidemics create a kind of history from below. They can be world-changing, but the participants are almost inevitably ordinary folk, following their established routines, not thinking for a second about how their actions will be recorded for posterity. And of course, if they do recognize that they are living through a historical crisis, it's often too late. Because, like it or not, the primary way that ordinary people create this distinct genre of history is by dying. While that cholera outbreak is much different from our virus, as are the sanitary conditions of London in the 1850s and present-day Wisconsin, you can't help but see a parallel. How much are we thinking about our places as individuals in this epidemic to the greater good? Would Wisconsin be opening if nearly a thousand people a day were being delivered into freezer trucks outside hospitals, as was happening recently in New York City? Would we be having the same conversations? Would lawyers be logging into a Zoom Supreme Court hearing to argue the lawfulness and semantic details of the Safer at Home order? If Wisconsinites were dying at the same clip as people in neighboring states, like Illinois or Michigan, would any of this be happening? Probably not. It can be hard to see ourselves in this short moment of history. We can speculate about the future, as we sometimes try to do on this show, but some of the most useful information we have access to as citizens is what has already happened. And while we don't have access to a crystal ball, we do have access to books. In this episode, Adam Krauss brings us another story of epidemics past. Adam has appeared on more than 30 recordings and published numerous essays and books, including The Revolution Will Be Hilarious and Other Essays, New Compass 2018. Uh, quick producer note, Adam wrote and produced this piece eight days ago. Um but I was not able to put the episode together until Check's Watch right now. So Adam did all of this before the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled against the Safer at Home order, so that's why there's not a mention of that. I personally apologize for the delay. I'm trying. I swear I'm trying. Here's Adam. I just finished rereading Albert Camus' 1947 novel The Plague, set in Oran, Algeria. Camus was born in present-day Drayon, Algeria, about 600 miles from Iran. In the novel, the bubonic plague reappears and Iran goes on lockdown. The citizens experience mass death, but also boredom, loneliness, and all the other emotions one might experience if, say, a virus started spreading. People started dying and everyone was told to stay put. It seemed topical. And it seems Camus researched the patterns of pandemics pretty well, because a lot of it seems quite a bit like the present. Dr. Bernard Riou and his co-workers drive themselves past the point of exhaustion, tending to the infected, working 20-hour days every day, growing numb to witnessing death, 
and living in constant danger of contracting the plague themselves. The political leaders are initially hesitant to close the town or do anything too drastic, and only take action after it is already too late. Later in the book, everyone is relieved when they start to flatten the curve, Camus writes. It is true that the actual numbers of deaths showed no increase, but it seemed that the plague had settled in for good at its most virulent, and it took its daily toll of deaths with the punctual zeal of a good civil servant. Theoretically, and in the view of the authorities, this was a hopeful sign. The fact that the graph after its long rising curve had flattened out seemed to many, Dr. Richard, for example, reassuring. The graph's good today, he would remark, rubbing his hands. The uncanny resemblances to the present abound. Cooped up and bored, some citizens attempt to get past the guards and go to the beach, while those in areas with low rates of infection declare it all overblown or play weird games with numbers. There are some striking passages near the beginning of Part 2 that could get inserted into a history of the coronavirus with very little revision. Camus writes, Our townsfolk apparently found it hard to grasp what was happening to them. There were feelings all could share, such as fear and separation, but personal interests, too, continued to occupy the foreground of their thoughts. Nobody has yet really acknowledged what the disease connoted. Most people were chiefly aware of what ruffled the moral tenor of their lives or affected their personal interests. A few sentences later, he writes, Thus the bare statement that 302 deaths had taken place in the third week of the plague failed to strike their imagination. For one thing, all the 302 deaths might not have been due to the plague. Also, no one in the town had any idea of the average weekly death rate in ordinary times. The population of the town was about 200,000. There was no way of knowing if the present death rate was really so abnormal. On Friday, May 1st, 2020, the highest single-day death toll from COVID-19 yet recorded in the United States occurred. 2,909 people died. On May 2nd, when these numbers were released, several governors across the country stepped up to microphones and announced they were easing stay-at-home measures, opening beaches, or letting more businesses reopen. Cable news pundits suddenly had lots of numbers to share to help to prove that these terrible-seeming ideas were actually just fine if you think about it the right way. They all suddenly knew that there are about 40,000 traffic deaths per year in the U.S., but we haven't banned cars, so what's the big deal about a virus making people die as well? 2,909 deaths in a day. That's a .0008% chance of it being you. That's statistically improbable. It's maybe like getting struck by lightning at the exact moment you win the lottery, right? What's the big deal? I need a haircut. Let's go to the beach. Numbers are great tools for downplaying dangers. Joseph Stalin supposedly said, A single death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. Apocryphal or not, he has a point. 20,000 dead in an earthquake. 12 in a shooting. 80 in a plane crash. How do we imagine these lives lost? A sea of dots? A really tall bar on a bar graph? Rows of headstones? Names on a wall? When the total number of deaths is greater than one, our understanding of death starts to change. The total becomes not tragedy, but a statistic. There were 2,909 on May 1st. I remember years ago reading a biography of William Howard Taft, former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and 27th President of the United States. On the final page, Taft's last act is described. He manages to sign a letter that was drafted for him, then the final sentence. He died on Saturday night, March 8, 1930, 
and then, all caps, THE END. And I lost it. I cried over the death of former President William Howard Taft more than 70 years after his death. I'm not gonna lie, he and I were never that close. There's a lot we didn't agree on, but there I was, crying about his death. The book ends on page 1079. So I had spent more than a thousand pages getting to know him, from childhood and schooling to sharing his adventures in the Philippines, reading his letters, his break with Teddy Roosevelt, and finally achieving his dream of joining the Supreme Court during the Harding administration. When that life I had come to know through all those pages came to an end, I felt an intense, unexpected wave of sadness. Sometimes I'll read an obituary in the newspaper, someone I've never heard of before, but the headline makes them sound interesting, and I'm just devastated by their death by the time I'm done reading. One death, even the death of a stranger, can become a tragedy once you know the hopes, dreams, friendships, family life, setbacks, and triumphs that compose that life. Shouldn't the 2,909 coronavirus deaths from May 1st make you 2,909 times sadder than reading a single obituary? But it doesn't work like that. A single death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. Maybe if we try to reverse the thought process. Imagine all the hopes, dreams, friendships, family life, setbacks, and triumphs that compose a single life. Imagine the sadness and devastation of their friends and families. Take that sadness and multiply it by 2,909. That's the amount of loss and trauma caused by this virus on just one sunny day in May. As people have begun to argue about how many COVID deaths are an acceptable number of COVID deaths, I've started to see a lot of jokes on the internet making fun of the trolley problem. When I got an undergrad in philosophy, I had to read a lot about the trolley problem. I had to read about it at least four more times than I would have liked. The more I see it made fun of, the happier I am, because it is a truly garbage thought experiment, and we should laugh it out of the public imagination as quickly and thoroughly as possible. It has already done enough damage to our brains. So how does the trolley problem work? Okay, so you imagine you're standing by the switch for a set of train tracks, which is really lucky timing because a runaway trolley, brakes busted, is heading for 20 people. But if you switch the track, the trolley will go a different way. Those 20 will live, but by switching it, you will kill one guy on another track. Or some variation on that. But you have to actively choose to kill one person in order to save some number greater than one. There is a book with a version where you have to throw a fat guy on the tracks, and his sheer heft will stop the trolley. Halted in its tracks, I guess. This is all meant to justify a system of ethics where the proper goal is maximizing happiness and survival across society. Even if there is collateral suffering, if what we do generates the greatest possible happiness or utility for the greatest number of people, what we are doing is good. But by saying that we should aim to maximize happiness, while accepting the possibility of collateral damage, we've created a whole ethical system built on the assumption that you can't save everyone, and certain sacrifices will need to be made which is a pretty weird starting point for an ethical system because it leads to almost immediately trying to decide who lives and who dies. Why not try to figure out how to preserve, protect, and provide for everyone instead of assuming there will be collateral damage on our way to maximized happiness so we'd better decide how much death is acceptable? And why is it that we're always the executioner and never the victim in these utilitarian thought experiments? We're never the fat guy or the loner on the other track. We're asked if we'd be willing to sacrifice someone for the greater good, not if we'd like to be sacrificed. It reminds me of the old adage about why it's so easy to get people to march off to fight a war. 
Everyone's always thinking about the poor sucker next to them who's probably not coming home. In one of the best memes making fun of the trolley problem that has started making the rounds in recent weeks, there's just one track, and the trolley has already run over several people. There's a stick figure standing at a switch, and it says something like, You can stop the trolley at any time, but the trolley company will lose revenue. Which really sums it up well. At this point, the sacrifice we're being asked to make is for GDP, not human survival. Corporate bodies receive more protection than human bodies. One of the most interesting characters in the plague is Raymond Rambert, a journalist on assignment who gets stuck in Iran when the quarantine begins and spends most of the book trying to figure out how to get back to France and his fiancée. He makes deals on the black market to arrange his escape. But delays pile on delays, and he learns he will have to wait a few more weeks until everything can get set up. He tells Dr. Ryu that in the meantime, he would like to volunteer himself. He works on the sanitation squads, fumigating homes where infections have occurred, organizing the quarantine camps at the football stadium, throwing himself into helping Iran survive this pandemic. His smuggler friends eventually let him know they can smuggle him out now. With the chance to leave finally a reality, he makes the surprise decision to stay. He spent two-thirds of the book trying to get out, and now that he can, he's decided he will keep doing this work until the pandemic is done. He has come to see it as his duty to stay. In the interest of not giving too many spoilers, I won't tell you if his decision to stay leads to his death or if he's reunited with his love in the end. But through his work on the sanitation squads, Rambert moves from solipsistic selfishness to solidarity with the citizens of Iran. At first, he just wants to escape. Forget he's under quarantine. Forget the danger he poses to the outside world. He doesn't belong there and he needs to escape. The people there are not his people. He came as a journalist and got stuck. Yet through his work, he developed enough solidarity with them that he could no longer abandon them without feeling he had abandoned his duty. If he left then, he'd be reunited with his love, but he would arrive as a person who had rejected what he now saw as his obligation. His scope of care had widened from the individual to everyone. He had no choice but to stay. Every ethical system worth anything should start with the attitude Rambert adopts when he decides to stay. Try to save everyone. Don't imagine statistics and probabilities and what percentage will die and how many of that is spread over 50 U.S. states or 190-odd sovereign nations. Forget about that stupid trolley. It's only a thought experiment. Real people of real flesh and bones are a real concern. We can't have already given up on some certain percentage of people. We need to try to save everyone, everyone on every track, even the fat guy. Our next story comes from Aaron Wolf. Aaron is a writer, musician, and radio host in Milwaukee. I will include links to her many bands and projects in the show notes. Here's Aaron. These days. These days. When who you've become, your physical and spiritual makeup, just flies around like dust. The sensation is dizzying, spending hours trying to be still, so when the dust settles, it can return to your shape. But what if it doesn't? What if this dust, post-whirl, settles outside of you, far away from you. 
or lands into someone or something else, how does one shake on the dust and reassemble? Long and longer walks seem to bring answers. Walks through fields, past big silent trees, walks along magnetic bodies of water and into the waving woods and under the peering sun, walks with sea glass underfoot, evidence of where the dust has reassembled to become something useful, or at least something of intrigue. Deposits of worn glass, cratered into the beds of the even more minuscule worn glass of sand, its purpose stripped away and broken apart to become an object with the merit of tinsel. And I, the crow overhead, swooped to pick it up and hold it close between my fingers, hoping its molecular magic will inspire a sea change. Thank you for listening to Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I'm Sean Williamson. Please check us out on Instagram and Twitter. A rating on Apple Pods is a true gift. Show music today by Sean Stefani. As always, links to cited articles and information can be found in the show notes. Playing us out today is George Oliveira. George is a talented thinker and songwriter from Brooklyn. The new three-song EP, I Wish, can be found on his Bandcamp page at georgeoliveira.bandcamp.com amongst many other singles. Here is one of those singles, No Gnome.